Matt, welcome to Living Writers. Hi, thanks for having me here. Well, it's great to have you here. It's great to see you. And um, we've got two books of yours on the table with us today. Cataclysm Baby out this year with Mud Luscious Press. Mud Luscious <laughs> Press, it's fun to say. Yes. And also your your collection of short stories out in 2010, How They Were Found. Um, and this was with Dezank, uh, Keyhole Press, an imprint of Dezank. So this is, this. is we've got lots of great stories uh, to talk about well, today. Thank you. So thanks for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we should say that we're lucky that you're making this live show here because you're also heading into Detroit for a reading tonight at Leopold's. Uh, do you mind giving us the, the facts? Sure. Uh, reading with uh, a reading called Big Smoke. It's being put on by a magazine called Heavy Feather Review. It's at 7 p.m. at Leopold's Books. Uh, at 15 East Kirby Street. Um, it's reading with like 10 other people, um, all from the area. Uh, most people either uh, with a new book out or coming out with first books. Um, friends of mine like Russell Brakefield, Francine Harris, and Robert James Russell, um, Sean Kilpatrick, Tom McCartan, a lot of people from the area. Uh, so I think a really good event. Um, and Heavy Feather's been doing some cool things. It should be really exciting to, to be there. It sounds great. And yeah. so that's tonight at yeah. Leopold's Books. At 7 p.m. Um, yep. 7 p.m., 15 Kirby. Yes. Okay. All right. So and we'll say that again. We'll remind everyone. But um, but without further ado, I'll read Matt's uh, bio from in the back of Cataclysm Baby, the book out this year. Matt Bell is also the author of How They Were Found, a collection of fiction, his work has appeared in Conjunctions, Hayden's Ferry Review, Gulf Coast, and Willow Springs, and has been anthologized in Best American Mystery Stories and Best American Fantasy, as well as shortlisted for Best American Short Stories. He can be contacted at his website, mdbell.com, um, which I visited. <laughs> and I, I love the, the, short, uh, the short film you have for one of the, um, your, your pieces, Aneida, Ophelia, Ornelia, um, the shadow play. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came to be? And you, it's lovely. Oh, thank you. Um, I can't take a ton of credit for it. Uh, oh, go on. No, <laughs> I really can't. Unless Chris um, and Michelle are listening. Right, right. No. Uh, Chris no. Hevener uh, runs a magazine called Analemma, which is, I think, maybe like the best looking literary magazine like in America. I mean, it's gorgeous. Um, it does a really great job with it. And uh, three of the pieces from Cataclysm Baby were in uh, an issue of the magazine. And when they had the release parties, they put together the shadow play for the release party. So they performed this this story as a, as a shadow play there. Um, and I recorded the audio for them, and they played it while they did the shadow puppets. Um, and so when the when the book got taken by Mud Luscious and we started talking about the release... Um, I wondered if they still had those shadow puppets, if they'd be willing to like record it for us. Uh, and they were great. So we went to, uh, was in New York for something else, we went to Brooklyn, and Chris has a really nice studio there. Um, they found the shadow puppets in storage somewhere, and we got them out and practiced and spent an evening, you know, shadow puppeting um, together. And it was really fantastic. And him and Michelle did a great job with it. Um, and I'm really lucky. You know, I think that that's one of the things that's really neat about sort of our community in the, in the small press and in the literary magazines is that wasn't something they had to do, or they didn't have to give up an evening to do that or spend time putting that together for me. Um, Chris put a lot of effort into that, um, and I'm really grateful for it because it made this awesome video. So I'm very lucky to have that. And, well, and it's collaboration, you, and you've made this new piece of art. Yeah, yeah. Something some, new that didn't right. exist before. Yeah. Their vision with your vision colliding, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really great. And people can check it out on your website, yeah. mdbell.com.
So they, you guys can, um, not if you're driving, but <laughs> <laughs> later on, check it out. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're a Michigan born and raised yes. lad, yeah. right? Right, right. Um, and so uh, so where on the hand are you, right, Matt? Right. <laughs> Let's start there, I guess the, first things the, first. The meat of the thumb. <laughs> um, no, I'm from, uh, from near Saginaw, a town called Hemlock. Um, I... My parents moved there when I was like one, so I grew up there primarily. Um, and uh, I lived in Saginaw for a couple of years before we moved to Ann Arbor. And then when we were 26 or 27, my wife and I moved to Ann Arbor so she could start a PhD here. Um, and now we're leaving for Marquette. So we're just bouncing around Michigan. Um, but but yeah, so mostly in the in the Lower Peninsula, I've been in Ann Arbor for five years. Um, so sad to leave, but excited for the next thing. Yeah, the yeah. the next part, the UP. Right, right. Then, yeah. and, and you'll be teaching at Northern Michigan University yeah. there in the creative writing program. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, what are some of the? Are, what do you have on deck for the 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 fall up there, Matt? Or is that still like in the formative? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's summer, so it's a little formative. But no, I'm teaching um, two under two two undergrad fiction workshops, undergrad nonfiction. So I'm, um, you know, putting together reading lists and that. I just. Uh, finished up like sort of a tentative fiction syllabus and I'm, it's over ambitious and I'm teaching too much and, and I might just go with it, but, <laughs> but it's well, a lot of stuff, you know, it's exciting. I mean, I think that, and you know this from teaching, like the exciting thing about a syllabus is that it's this like, um, this hopeful document, right? It's this, this scheduled happiness for the fall. We're going to talk about all these great things. And we're going to have this great time. Um, so it's really fun to put together to have these 60 writers I want to talk about with my students. Um, it's it's thrilling, I think, as much as, you know, syllabus writing can be a drudge, too. But, I mean, that's it's great. I'm really excited to, to get up there and do that. It must have been hard for you to winnow it down because of your, on your blog, you have so many, you know, you you have also your um, your reading lists and you, you have books that you're giving shout outs to. Yeah. And so... And you're moving with that. You're reading new books and editing books for Dezank all the time. So you're someone who's really steeped in truly contemporary American fiction. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, I think so. I think that, you know, um, and maybe a couple of years ago, almost a detriment where like I, I was really good at like now and not great at like yesterday, you know, um, but I'm trying. So to... What do you mean? Like, so you recognize that and you started. Is that when you started a reading list of like the? Yeah, I think there's just people that I felt like. um that I wanted to, I wanted to experience, I wanted to deal with, you know, I was reading, you know, started reading Cormac McCarthy and, and for instance, and at one point last year read like kind of everything in McCarthy's in a row. And right now I'm kind of reading like everything of DeLillo and, um, I did everything of Beckett a couple of years ago. And, uh, and there's just people that you just have to sort of deal with. They're, they're this great. They're this good that to not would be like missing out on something you should have as a writer. Um, but I think a lot of that was through, I got to those people through contemporary people who'd been inspired by them or who'd been, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, I had never read any Beckett until grad school and I had a professor who was like, you know, oh, you have to read Beckett because you're writing like in these ways. Mm -hmm. And when I went and read it, I was like, oh, I was, the reason was because I was being influenced by Brian Evanson or Robert Lopez mm -hmm. or somebody who was, who was influenced right. by Beckett. Yeah. yeah. So I was starting to, down the road and then I went back, you know, <laughs> um, but that's great. I mean, that's a, that's an okay way to get there, you know. And now you've got a Cormac McCarthy quote from the road in yeah. the front of Cataclysm Baby, right? Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So that, so the, the diving into him and being, I mean, that's a strange world to be in. I, I mean, especially I think after reading blood meridian did you have to take a break or did you just keep going 
As far as reading reading McCarthy? Or? Yeah, because when you're going through those yeah. periods where you're experiencing <laughs> right. someone, it can also do a little bit of a number on your, your head, let alone your voice. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think it could be... I mean, I don't know. Like, I know people say, like, they don't read strong voices. They don't read, you know, certain people while they're writing because it's distracting or because they're trying to keep their own thing. Um, I don't know. I feel like... I always want to have the best possible inputs all the time, right? You know, the old garbage in, garbage out kind of thing. Or, like, you know, my, my dad when I was a kid said that you should surround yourself with friends who, like, make you better. So you should only read books that are, like, it's okay to read books that are all, like, that powerful or that strong of voices. Um, I mean, you can't just you can't just steal it and put it right into your book. But, it, but it's okay to keep the bar high all the time, you know, and to have that around you. Um, and so absorbing that yeah, language pattern yeah. in a way. And yeah. Yeah, I think that to be around the best stuff all the time is is maybe the best thing for you as a writer. So, um, but yeah, I think that with anybody, if you read everything of somebody's, you eventually start seeing also the things that make you not want to spend time with them, right? You know, it's like nobody's perfect, and there's always something. Um, and I know I've always experienced burnout at some point in those marathons of a single writer, but but it's okay too, you know. And and so you mentioned your your dad, Matt. And so let's go back to those 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 t- early years in Hemlock. Sure. So as a, a were you always like a, an avid reader? Uh, um, no matter what, uh, yeah. Or, sure. Or did it start with the reading and then move to the writing, or were you always writing as a kid? I don't I don't remember always writing as a kid. Um, I definitely was always reading. I kind of can't remember not reading. You know, like I don't I don't have like a memory of not being able to. Um, I, so I was always reading. I was always interested. I, you know, my um, parents were always took us to the library. would buy us books. And we wanted them and that. And so we read a lot. I have brothers two years younger than me. And so we were close enough in age. We read a lot together. Um, and my, my earliest memories of, of writing were sort of fe- like making new versions of things I already liked, right? Like I had read all of this kind of book I could find at like my small rural library or at, you know, the... And we had to buy books like Target or something because there weren't like, you know. And so we ran out what there was. And it was like, well, I'll just make one like it, you know. And so I remember in like seventh or eighth grade writing these like um, like uh, Lord of the Rings style stories. Um, like make, you know, not good, but making like these pastiches of all the things I liked about them to make my own so that I had another one to read. Yeah. And for your brothers, too, did they th- did you have early readership? <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost positive I probably forced my brother Nick to read some, but I don't remember that. We, you know, um, but I think that's good. I think that that was really helpful. But I didn't write in high school that I remember, other except for like, but not creatively. Um, I don't think I started again until I was 19 or so, and then I started writing. Um, I don't know, like really bad poetry, um, and and then maybe I was like 20 or 21, I started writing stories again, and then I pretty much been pretty serious about it since but it so it wasn't really until my early 20s that I got started doing what I'm or starting on the path I'm on now I guess yeah was it something that happened to you then in undergrad is that like where you started taking like a you know the class or you read something then or what I mean for for god's sakes what what started the bad poetry (laughs) I don't know what started the bad poet well I guess I had a I had a professor um at Saginaw Valley where I started out my undergrad um, in, in a composition class named Daniel Snyder, who I ended up being friends with, he's an excellent writer himself. Um, but it was a composition class. We didn't do creative things. I don't really remember talking to him about that in the class, but something around that period, I started writing again. Um, and then I ended up dropping out of school for a while and I went back to community college at, at Delta College in Saginaw. 
Um, and he was teaching there. And I and I that's a what a coincidence, right? And I saw him in the hall one day, and I so I said, you know, like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, and I don't think he did. And um, but I said, you know, like I I started writing because I had your class, and I talked to you about it sometime. And so he was a person who gave me just you know early advice and early support. Um, and and like I said, I'm and not that can make all the difference. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think that even just having somebody to talk to about it, because you know, I think that. You know, growing up in a small town and sort of, you know, I'd, when I was dropping out of school and they ended up being isolated from these sort of like intellectual communities make that hard to get that support. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's even if your folks like were, were happy you were doing it, sometimes if, you know, unless sometimes if people don't understand what you're trying to do, right. they can be happy for you. But also you can know that no one gets what you're you're doing. Right, in a way. right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like even just having people talk about the reading I was doing was really important, you know, that I didn't have, um, you know, I, I remember getting into like Dennis Johnson or David Foster Wallace and stuff, and it was like, I couldn't find anybody to talk to them about who had read them. So it was like, just because of where I lived, and I was, it was like, or maybe so I didn't look hard enough. So how did you find it? Like, what, what, yeah, and what Dennis Johnson book did you read first? Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, so I read I read Jesus' Son first, you know. Um, Hallelujah. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I know... I actually found I'd read uh, Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk, and I read an interview with him where he says three favorite writers were Amy Hempel, Raymond Carver, and G- and Dennis Johnson. And I hadn't read any of those people, so I went and read them. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. a great place to start, right? Amy Hempel, <laughs> Raymond Carver, and Dennis Johnson—you'll be fine. And uh, and that that became a pattern where I would read interviews with writers I'd like, and they would mm-hmm. mention writers, and I'd read those writers. Yes. And so I started just like chasing down my own canon, you know, like you can put together your own your own literature. Uh, I still do that. It's fantastic. It's the way to build it, you know. Well, let's take a short break and we'll come back and let's hear some from Cataclysm Baby, if you don't mind, uh, Matt. Uh, Today on the program, Matt Bell, his his latest novella, Cataclysm Baby, and his book of short stories, How They Were Found. You've got living writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hutzel. Today on the program, Matt Bell is here. Uh, Cataclysm Baby, his novella. Um, we're going to hear from him shortly a, a bit, but I want to give a shout out uh, to the Liz. Liz Wasson, um, who is engineering for us today and has been in the engineering seat many a day here with Living Writers and who is going to be going on the road soon and um, traveling in the turtle. Um, she may be coming to a city near you. <laughs> <laughs> know if we're gonna you're gonna be able to know where the Liz is but she'll be out there on the road and so um you you just uh I don't know I'm gonna miss her her terribly so 
thanks to the Liz for engineering Thank today. You. And um, and and Matt was saying he he wouldn't have even done the show if if Liz was not Absolutely going to not. engineer yeah, today. Yeah. He was gonna like just walk <laughs> walk off. Um, so thanks to the Liz on many levels <laughs> and for playing the music Absolutely. today too and making us making us sound good, right, Matt? Yes, I and agree. Now, let's hear some of this 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 fiction. Let's go into your world here. So Cataclysm Baby is a, a novella in shorts. It's a, a series of 26 uh, post-apocalyptic parenting stories, all narrated by fathers. Um, so they're all very short. Um, this is one of the shortest ones. Uh, and they all have these three three name alphabetical titles. So this one is uh, Holly, Hallie, Hamako. Um, and uh, I think that's all you need to know. So, Hallie, Hallie, Hamako. The day came when we could no longer hide the glistening sight of our daughter's flippers, nor the secret of her skin, its oils and fur. Like the other parents afflicted before us, we took her to the lonely end of the island, to the cliffs hung high above the breaking surf. There my wife kissed our daughter's white, wet nose, after which I bound tight her swaddling, stilling her wide limbs to her sleek middle, and then together we let our baby tumble from our hands, through the tall air, into the swallowing sea. Afterward, what endeavors we undertook to forget, even as our guilty bodies tried again for some more right-birthed baby, even as our bodies proved unable to produce another, even as we entered this famished sea, this season of nets cast out and collected empty, until throughout our village every stomach was as hollowed as our crib. And now these legs, walking me back to the cliff, my guilt path worn through the jungle. Now these eyes, watching the ocean crash its anger fist upon the shore, a parade of knuckles on top of knuckles on top of knuckles. Now this hurt-drowned heart, where I see how other times the ocean is flat like so much glass, like the unwalked beach below, its sand stormed upon, lightning-fused and mirror-smooth, when sometimes I catch my own face staring back from the waters beyond. Those waveless days I see my face, or a face like my face, but not the faces of the fish that once swam in those depths. Our fish are gone, and our daughter too, and together her mother and I pray for some rewinding of waves, some reversal of what awful ripples we have made, so that our daughter might one day find her way to the flatter side of the island, to the yellow beaches, to the path leading to our small hut, our home meant once to be her home. And if it happens, if our pup returns, then what, then how? With anger, with forgiveness, with love, or with what thing we deserve instead, a new mood from our new daughter, dredged deep from the dark, rising slow and sure, purposed only to take us back down. Thanks, Matt. It seems Thanks. like an inca incantation almost um, with the rhythms that are happening, like or, or a prayer of some sort for. Redemption. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think that's accurate. I think there's, um, you know, when when they first starting to work on the book, you know, for me to get started on something, a, a voice sort of has to, you know, come about, or I have to get interested in the voice or what it's saying. Um, and I think that from early on in this book, the the voice was maybe liturgical is maybe the word I'm looking for, or, or, um, or you know, a sort of move to the mythic in it, you know, that, that sense of sort of um, an archaic diction almost. And I think that really interested me, this idea of writing about the future with an archaic language, archaic cadence, um, that there'd be something interesting about that, that 
to speak about what's to come with the voice of what's past. You know, it would make sort of a, I don't want to say timelessness, but something like that, you know, that that would bridge the gap. And so when you're, you're saying with the, the, you start with the voice first, um, yeah. what does, does that mean that each of these, these voices feel very particular and singular to you? Like, do they, um, because the liturgical quality mm-hmm. does unite them. Yeah. And that works as part of like the, the unifier here. But when you're actually saying that it takes a voice to interest you or to catch you, um, what does that become? Are you able to say what that becomes in your imagination? Like, as it is, is it given... Um, because even in um, the Oneida, Ophelia, or Nelia, there's the shadow place we don't see. You know, right, you know? right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's interesting because, in a way, that's what's happening in these. Yeah, there I think are that, shadows. Yeah, oh, that's a nice way to say it. I, I think that, um, I think the voice inside of Cataclysm Baby has a lot. Each father speaks in a, a similar way, if not, I think they're distinct, but they're similar. But I think from from story to story or book to book, that I'm I'm always looking for a new way to speak or a new stance because that. But being true to that voice, um, I'm required to say things in a different way than I normally would, uh, as opposed to speaking in my own voice. Or and that that shift of stance um, makes me look at things differently, or makes me explore more honestly. You know that by not being myself when I'm writing, by not being th- this sincere person, but by trying to be this other sincere person um, or this other earnest person speaking, you know, in a certain way, that that shift makes me have to write differently or explore the topic differently or feel differently than I than I natively would. And that's really interesting. That makes it interesting for me that I have to have this other experience as opposed to just writing down sort of like my surface self or my rote thoughts or something. That's probably when you know it's working then. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that, it you know, when the voice is right, it tells you how to write the next thing. That if, you know, that continuing to speak in that voice for as long as it'll go... Um, is generative, you know, that finding out what that voice has to say is, is interesting and creates more story as opposed to sitting down and trying to like scheme up a new idea or, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's a, um, a process of being true to what you've already done that creates the next thing as opposed to just like piling novelty on, onto the story to go ahead. Yeah. It wasn't as if you were saying, well, this, this kid's got flippers, so the next kid's got to right, live in right. a, you know, <laughs> like the chimney. Has right, to live right. in an ashen world. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. So, th- but it is interesting because of the way that this, because I'm sure, well, actually, I should ask you because I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, because it uh, now that it, it sits here before us, Cataclysm Baby, it's, it's definitely is, is like there's a there was a project at work because it's right. every letter of the alphabet. So, right, <laughs> right, right. And three names. So you had certain rules that you were working within. Yeah. So how how did you how did you start find yourself moving through it? So I, I initially wrote the the first story in the Or did you know yeah, did you, how initially did right, you right. Very good, yeah. <laughs> Um I, I started out just writing an individual story and so I didn't realize I was doing this bigger project. Um and the first story is, is a, a childbirth story and there's a point in the story where where I wrote the sentences or a pair of sentences I didn't know what they meant. Um and just to grab them here, they're uh, for a baby, a name chosen from a book of names, each name exhausted one after another, a sequenced failure. Um, and this idea that they had, they'd had these other children um, that they hadn't lived or something had happened to and that they were continuing to name children sort of in order um, suggested that baby bookness, right? You know, that idea that this this tragic world where they're just exhausting the baby book, you know, 
um, which suggested there could be other stories. And so I had named that first one with that three-name title there. Um, and then that sort of became part of the pattern going forward. And why? And why those three names? Like, was one of them, like, a shout-out to Faulkner? Or, like, what? So I think that the names are... Um, the names are interesting in the book to me, in part because sometimes they're very directed and sometimes they're um, not. Yeah. And that there's, and because there are, because the characters in the book don't have names, you know, they they don't add up. Like some stories have one child, but you still have three names. Yes. Some have a dozen childs, but you still have three names. Um, sometimes there's three children, but not necessarily those three children, right? Because you wouldn't normally name your three kids in alphabetical order, um, normally. Uh, so, right. <laughs> but I think there's there's something powerful about having these these proper names, the only proper nouns in the book that then become these symbols or signs or, and we know names have meanings and we want to attach meaning to them, but it's not clear whether that meaning exists. And I think that I would say that sometimes the name meanings were generative of the story in some way or the sound of the names. Um, sometimes the names existed before the story, sometimes vice versa. Um, so the names are important to me in the generation too, but they don't have this like one-to-one sort it's of, not, it, yeah. It, they aren't always like an indicator of something right, right. that's really, yeah. that's okay. And there, I mean, there are some, I think that are, I think the, um, the B story has, is, uh, Beatrice, Bella, Blaze and, um, Bella, I believe means beauty and Blaze means lame. So there's sort of like, there's these, there's some that are more directed, um, but a lot of them don't, you can't make a match in that way. And I think that that's, uh, that's for the best that if it was all too, it would be cheap in a certain way. But it's interesting because it gives this idea of um, when you work within a project, because like you mm-hmm. didn't think, oh, I'm going to write and a right, book right. without, you know, <laughs> yeah, using yeah, 26 yeah. letters. Right. But so but where you so it's interesting to think about the choices a writer makes to make something work because right. you do you you are very particular about some rules that you mm-hmm. do, you know, like you didn't drop a letter out or you didn't. Right. 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 <laughs> or, right. Um, so yeah. it's just interesting, like what what is like what it becomes that matters to you as writer, right? To affect what you make. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's that's a nice way to say it. I think that those constraints are generative. You know, you have to write this many pieces. <laughs> You're you know you have to write this many pieces. Like you know, twenty in, it's getting harder, right? Like how many of these right. do you have in you, right? You know, <laughs> give me the voice. Right, right, right. <laughs> it gets it gets trickier in places, um, but not necessarily in a bad way. Like I think that those are forcing you to innovate and forcing you to try new things. That if I if I didn't have that alphabetical structure, maybe I would have stopped after 10. Maybe I would have stopped after 15, you know. Um, at one point, I thought I was going to write 72 and have like, but that was crazy. Um, it wouldn't have been good. <laughs> it would have made a bad book. But the, but the, having those those constraints, you know, like all father speaking, um, which meant you always had to be in a first person paternal voice. Um, to have the three name titles meant you couldn't use the titles for anything but that. And that creates other choices that you have to follow. And I think that's a really good way to get through the day's work as a writer, you know, to have something to those rules to work inside. And when you were writing these, Matt, did you also I think that's a great, great point oh, actually too <laughs> um, good <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> ding was, if we were a sports show right, right. the dial I get a, I get a point. would be yes, amping yes, up yes, on good, the points good. Yeah, right? Liz, well I have to one do. now you know <laughs> oh, more, <laughs> sure, definitely more than one surely at this point Matt yes um, uh, I'm noticing <laughs> um, but so when you write these are you also um, 
when you're in your drafting stages of these, mm -hmm. were you reading them out loud? How often, when did you move to that part? Or was that even part of the revision process? Because when you read it here, you can tell that you're, 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 you're loving the language. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're, you're in, it's part of what transports you. Like it's not just images. It's also like the, how it sounds. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I, um, I read a lot, a lot as, as part of my process. And I think that, this is probably the first um, manuscript of mine where I read out loud all the way through from the very beginning. I've always done it as sort of like I used to, years ago I was doing as like a proofreading thing, right? You just read out loud because you can't <laughs> skip anything. Um, you know, you have to read all your words if you're reading it out loud. Uh, but I, it became more and more important to me, and um, and I think that. Uh, at this point, I read everything aloud as I'm going. Often, you know, I'll, I'll write a paragraph and read it out loud, and I'll rewrite it. I mean, like it's it's a constant part of it. Um, I write in the mornings. And I live in a condo, and my my office wall is up against the neighbors. Um, I think their bedroom, and so I'm I'm just like in my office, like yelling this stuff at like nine in the morning, you know. And I'm sure they oh, so hate me. And yes. so yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you gotta you gotta emote, you know. And <laughs> so I'm not making any friends at home, but um, good thing about this I'm new moving, job. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're gonna have a house now. Be able to be louder, but um, but I think that that's a really important part of it to me. I think that even if you never hear a book read aloud, a good book. Um, the acoustics of the language have like a bodily effect mm. that, that, that the sound of the language is felt in the body. And so, so that's another layer that you affect the reader on, you know, you're affecting them with plot and with character and with um, imagery and symbolism and metaphor and, and acoustics. And that even if you don't hear it aloud, if it's put into the book, it will, um, it'll do something for the reader. So I think it's important to why give up that layer? Why give up that tool? So. so so even writing this book is affecting how you're working now on the, the new books. Oh, absolutely. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll take a short break. We'll hear from um, Matt Bell um, reading how a, something, a little bit from how they were found, a piece of a story. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. <laughs> You've got Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today. In the studio, Matt Bell is here, and the Liz is engineering. Um, Matt is here and going to read um, from one of his short stories and how they were found, and then he's going to be on his way driving to Detroit um, to do a reading 
at Leopold's Books, and that's on fifteen at fifteen Kirby, um, and at seven o'clock. So you've got time to also uh, have a bite to eat and make it there too, and see Maybe. Matt <laughs> Matt Bell in person, right? Yes, and that'd then, be great. And will you be reading from Cataclysm Baby, or what? Or do you not want to tell us what you're going to do? No, I'm actually going to read. Um, I, I think I'm going to read some new work. Uh, some of the people I'm reading with have have, uh, have maybe heard me read from this. I think twice already. So I'd feel like not to maybe torture people. Who come out. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, read the, over and over the same things. Um, what about I, third time's a charm? Right, right, right. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm going to read some some new material. Is it from um, the upcoming novel that's going to be uh, out no, in 2013? New, new shorts that I was asked to. Um, one I was asked to write, and the one I wrote for myself. Um, I wrote a piece for a, um, a I believe still secret uh, anthology. A friend of mine is is um, editing about the U.S. presidents. And so I wrote a piece about Andrew Jackson. So I think I'm gonna read that. So because Andrew Jackson is amazing. I don't. I mean, I, I knew I knew a little bit, but like the research was a lot of fun. And so why did you? Did you? Were you assigned? I was him? assigned, and I was so excited because he's awesome. Because he just had all these really exciting things about him, and you know, I got really obsessed with Andrew Jackson for two <laughs> weeks. Um, and so I, you know, I might read that, and then maybe something else new. So I, you know, try to switch it up from time to time. You know, I think that. Uh, when Cactus and Baby came out, I did 20 readings in like 35 days, um, which is a lot. And uh, and so, you know, not that I'm I'm sick of the book, but I've read a lot from it. And I've read around locally a couple of times from it. So it's so new stuff. And with and actually, Matt, that's kind of um, that's that's great that you had so many readings because yeah. the, the world has been changing a little bit on that front with with writers going on book tour. Absolutely. So could could you say a few words about that? Like, did how was it um, Mud Luscious Press that helped you put this together? Or is it because you have a bit of a know how on some of the how things work with Maybe. literary well <laughs> yeah. you're an editor yeah. at, at an, a literary an online yeah, yeah, literary yeah. journal editor at Desank Books um. <laughs> you know I um, I with both books I've done a lot of readings uh, when Hollywood Found came out I did like three or four readings a month for like six months I was out on the road a lot and then this one I did it kind of all at once because I was getting I knew I was going to move and I needed to sort of do it um, but I think I've done a lot of a lot of reading series um you know, there's great reading series all over the country. There's great reading series in in Baltimore and in Pittsburgh and in Chicago. And so I've done a lot of those. Do you um, get in your, so? Do you get in your car and yeah, drive to yeah, them and yeah. sort of go and and yeah, like a band with one member. You know, <laughs> um, you Woo! know, but it's not as cool as being in a band. And uh, and then you know, some universities uh, have invited me to come in and, and speak and read and you know work with students and that. So I've, some and of is it because that. some of the people that you you know, Matt, or are they or are you sending them a copy of your book and they're like. Yeah, get this guy in here. I don't think I've ever done <laughs> no. a done a cold invite that way. Um, I haven't done much of that where I think I've had to like bully people into having me. Oh no, me. no, you, been, don't, I know, you I know. don't seem like yeah. the bullying type. <laughs> I mean, I could be if I had to be, probably. But I'm not been really lucky, and people have been really gracious and kind to me and invited me places. Um, you know, we I have a lot of friends who do a lot of readings too, and I think we we've tried when, when possible to invite people along. You know, uh, my friend Mike Chisniewski and I have read in. Um, in New York every summer for the last couple of years, just to take a road trip. And one of us will get invited and be like, well, can this other guy also come? And then we'll, then we can go together and we can hang out and, you know, there's your band. Right, right. Then you have a band, just two guys. It's not sad at all. And, um, and it makes it a lot better. And I think that, uh, I mean, that's one of the best parts about, about having the books out has been to do that kind of stuff and to get out and, and to see people, um, enjoying it in that way. Uh, but a lot of the, uh, a lot of my friends are sort of my age and coming up as writers, Long before we had books, we were reading in bars and reading in in coffee shops, and um, and a lot of them were, you know, I think 
not me necessarily, but I think a lot of people got a lot of the early recognition as performers almost. So they were these great readers that they were you're learning to read and you're performing, you know, you're doing 50 readings before you have a book instead of starting to, to become a performer when you have a book. Um, and a lot of them are phenomenal reading, readers for that, that they're coming up from this place of, of sharing without like sales on the line, right? Like they're just, you're out there doing it um, as an event you organize together or you're, you're sharing with the community um, in a non-commercial way. That's really interesting and I think has been really good for all of us. Matthew Osman comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. As, as a, a poet and performer that... He he just is. Yeah. Right? Well, Matthew's phenomenal. You know, he's uh, he's the poetry editor for the Collage. So we worked together on that for for a couple of years. Um, you know, his first first full length book coming out next year, and he's oh, a phenom- I didn't know that. yeah great. yeah yeah absolutely oh, from Alice James I believe yeah oh great and he's a fantastic reader um, and somebody who's who always does a really great job and it's it's really great to see him like that that we'd say that we'd seen around or we already knew who was um, before they had a book right which I think is is a, getting to be the model in some ways like you, there's other kinds of success than just the book or before the book even um and it's great to see and i think it means that when you get to the book stage people are prepared or they've made some of those connections already and it's it's different so so would you even say so go to some of the open mics in your neighborhood or in your town or well <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know across the country or, sure, drive, yeah, or, yeah. or if you want to drive to the neighboring town if you're feeling a bit shy and yeah i mean i think that any way that you can engage with your community first is best. I think that what I see over and over again, you know, from being a from book reviewer and running a magazine and work at the press, is that the mistake people make um, promotion wise or or getting their name out there uh, in you know heavy air quotes um, is is they wait until that like book time. But that's not how it works. Like you be part of your community from the beginning. Like review other people's books You're on Facebook. Tell people about books you love. Um, promote other people's readings. And you do all that stuff, and and when it's your turn and it's your good book, that that system will be there for you because you're part of it. You know, it's not a slimy networking kind of thing. It's a way of building what you want to receive. You know, that you make that community strong, and then you get the benefits of it. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of people reaping those rewards that have been doing that for the last five or ten years, and um, especially because of the internet being able to amplify some of those efforts. I think it's really exciting. So I think people that want to be involved or want to be part of their literary community should join by doing good works, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and I, I definitely, I, I noticed that in how, how you're living, like with at least your model online with um your own website then and linking to a blog. Yeah. yeah. And then also having your links to the collagist um, and which seems to be where you could every month people could be reading all of your, your whole journal online. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For, yeah. For free. Yep. And so that's Collagist. You yeah. could go check that out. And it seems like, are you also getting tons of um, uh, submissions? Because I saw that you have, um, like, the winner of the chapbook contest will be announced August right, 15th right. on your site. Um, and when the next journal is also published right, online. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, between the, the, the Zank and the Collagist, we read a lot of submissions. I mean, really just an enormous amount. Um, but that's oh, I great. I think I am. Am I confusing? No, it's okay. The They're both, no, okay. it's fine. I'm doing <laughs> both, you know. No, I mean, I read for both of them. So it's, um, but I read all of the, uh, all of the fiction, nonfiction for Collagist. Matthew Olsen does all the poetry. Um, Gabriel Blackwell does all the book reviews. So we have sort of things that are, we're little. Um, uh, we're really autonomous group. Everybody's their own thing. I always think of us as like cells and like an organization. We're like, I don't really know what Gabriel's doing, but it's always great. It gets done every month, you know. And he's really amazing. 
Um, but we're all working really hard, but it's something, it's exciting. We're getting to put great art out into the world. Um, it keeps us involved. We're meeting people. Um, I think the literary journals are, are exciting because you're often working with people who, not only people who have books and are really established, but people starting out that, you know, if you want to see what's going to be in books three years from now, you read literary journals, you know, like these are what are, these are the collections of next year, you know? Um, and so I think it's an exciting place to be getting to work at the press level. Where we're looking at people with finished books and then some of those people still at the magazine level, but also people who are starting out or are building their craft or learning it. And it's neat to get to be there, you know, to, to have students in my life and to have contributors and to have authors we're working with and getting to be there at all those different stages is really, um, fascinating. And I'm really grateful for the experience. And it seems like, but you still have time to produce your own work yeah. because that seems pretty rigorous <laughs> and that you'd be sort of bombarded with words all the time and making and, and edit and thinking about other people's um, worlds of words, yeah. like as an editor, for example, of a, of a book that you're going to be, you know, so, but you're still, are, you're generating. Is it like, how, how is that happening? Are you extremely disciplined? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I mean, sort of, I'm, I'm routine based, you know, I, I write in the morning from the time I get up until about lunch on a normal day. Um, and then after lunch, I, I do design work, read submissions or teach or work on my, my other stuff. Um, and that, you know, continues in the evenings and, um, and I just do that every day, um, seven days a week if I can, you know, and it's, and, and it works out, you know, I think that the best thing for, for me as a writer is that by the time I'm doing everything else, my writing is done. That if I have to spend the rest of the day, you know, reading the 200 worst submissions on earth, which I never spend my day doing that, but if I had to, if I had to read, you know, a thousand, you know, composition essays or something, you know, which I mean, again, I like reading my students stuff, but you know, like that's a different kind of work. And if you had to, you know, spend the whole day doing web design on a, on a thing for design cause it's not working right and you're frustrated or I have to run errands or my car breaks down. I wrote, you know, like it's already done. I've done my part. Um, and that I've, I've privileged my, my writing in my life in a way that it comes first before my other work. So even though I have all this other stuff to do, um, I'm greedily taking my space first, um, which works out. That makes sense. Yeah, you have to. I mean, that you can't you can't grade and read submissions and lay out a book and um, you know proof an ebook and go with your friends and do the grocery shopping, cook dinner, and then write. You're not going to write. You're not going to write well. Why? Why should your art get the tired, angry version of you when it could have the fresh? from your dreams version of you, you know, like, I mean, it's just, you, you got to find a way to give it that way for me, at least that's the way my, my I work. Yeah. Matt, can we hear yeah, yeah, how absolutely. they were found? Would you mind? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read just a little bit of a, a long story called the collectors, which is, um, based on Homer Langley Collier, who were, um, uh, died in the fifties or I believe the fifties in New York city. Um, they were hoarders and died in a mansion filled with their own sort of trash. Um, and this is late in the story. Each of, They're in numbered sections, and this section is called William Baker, and is the man who uh, found Homer Collier, who was uh, the younger brother, who um, the two brothers both died in the house, but this is the guy who found the younger one. So this is William Baker. William Baker breaks a second-story window from atop a shaking ladder, William Baker peers into the darkness and then signals to the other officers that he's going in. William Baker uses his nightstick to clear all the glass out of his way. William Baker climbs through the window into the room beyond. William Baker gags but does not vomit. William Baker turns 
his flashlight from left to right, then back again, like a lighthouse in a sea of trash. William Baker thinks, not a sea, but a mountain rising from a sea, a new, unintended landscape. William Baker begins to take inventory in his mind, counting piles of newspapers, broken furnishings, books molded to floorboards. William Baker puts his hands to a wall of old newspapers and pushes until he sinks into his wrists. William Baker finds the entrance to the tunnel that leads out of the room, then gets down on his hands and knees and crawls through. William Baker passes folding chairs and sewing machines and a wine press. William Baker passes the skeleton of a cat or else a rat as big as a cat. William Baker turns left at a baby carriage, crawls over a bundle of old umbrellas. William Baker crawls until he can't hear the other officers yelling to him from the window. William Baker's inside the house, inside its musty, rotted breath, inside his tissues of decaying paper and wood. William Baker disappears from the living world and doesn't come back until two hours later when he appears at the window with his face blanched so white it shines in the midnight gloom. William Baker knows where Homer Collier's body is. William Baker has held the dead man, has lifted him from his death chair, as if the skin and bones and tattered blue and white bathrobe still constituted a human person, someone worth saving. William Baker counts the seconds that pass, the minutes, the days, and the years. William Baker thinks it took a long time for this man to die. William Baker has no idea. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's Matt Bell reading from his short story collection, How They Were Found, the story the collectors. We'll take a short break, um, and then we'll be right back with more living writers and our guest today, Matt Bell. Thank you. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today in the studio here, Matt Bell. Um, Liz, the Liz is engineering for us. Um, Matt Bell just read um, from his short story collection, How They Were Found, um, from the short story collectors. Um, oh, and he will be reading tonight in Detroit. I want to mention this again in case you're just joining us at Leopold's Books at 7 p.m. And that's um, on 15 Kirby, at 15 Kirby. Uh, Leopold's Books at 7 p.m. tonight. Matt Bell will be reading with a host of lovely others. Um, 
And if you've been with us, you've got to hear him reading um, this this incredible fictional worlds that you create. Um, this last, The Collectors, was based on a, a, a historic moment. So what's that like, like doing the research for this? And what... Uh, your assignment for Andrew Jackson was given to you. Right. How right. did the collectors sort of arrive as voices for you? Um, the uh, the collectors came out first because I um, got really interested in the in the two brothers Homer and Langley who um, they were as as I understand or as I recall cause it's been a couple of years since I did the research at this point um, but they were living in Harlem in a mansion at the time when when Harlem was was sort of changing demographically and they ended up as I understand being one of the last. Um, uh, Caucasian families left in in Harlem um, at that point in the century, and they were very, became very paranoid and sort of shut themselves in. And they had just all these possessions leaped everywhere. The brothers were creating like a, one brother was confined to his chair from illness, and the other one is creating these like tunnels and booby traps. And it was so this really grim sort of situation. Um, but I actually found out about them while uh, visiting uh, my parents, and my mom had like a like a daily devotion book. That was like, you know, like a prayer book um, that was like laying out somewhere. And I was reading, reading like through it, just absently wasting time. And uh, it it was using them as an example of like not holding on to things, but like giving them to God. Right. And and I immediately was like, these are great characters. <laughs> um, and thanks, mom. Right. Right. And I totally missed the actual message of the thing, which was like, don't hang on to your Give things. To and instead I was like, oh, obsession, you know. <laughs> And so I completely failed as far as like the daily devotion went, um, which is okay. And, well, no, uh, each in their own way. Each in our own way, right, right. And um, and so I, I started reading about them. I was just sort of curious about it. And it was just staying as this idle curiosity. It wasn't something I was writing about. Um, and uh, and I did a lot of reading about it. And I can remember going on like walks with my wife, and I wouldn't shut up about them. Like you know, like. What my wife wants to hear at the end of the day of work is like me talk about like two people who've been dead for 60 years and die in horrible circumstances. Um, and at some point I, I started uh, working with it. I was in the, the story is in three or four different voices and I was writing all these fragments. I didn't really know who went to who. And um, one of the things the story ended up being ab- about was this dealing with historical matter. There's this first person narrator who's an authorial sort of character who ends up trapped in the house too. Um, and I was concerned about this idea of using a tragedy that happened to other people to make something of mine. Like that just I wasn't sure how I felt about it. Um, so the story ended up being about half about that, I think. Um, the part I read about William Baker, um, as I obviously noticed, and I've, you know, the rep- repetition right, then of the name. To know um, the only thing I know about William Baker is his name. And so, and the other guy, I believe his name is Artie Matthews, um, although I might be getting it wrong, who finds the other brother. They're just names in the historical record for me. You know, there was no other information. It was, you know, that, um, and so because that's all I knew about him, I just kept saying it. You know, it felt like it was something that that was worth repeating that Connecting fact. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, trying to use that that dearth of research there, that that lack in the research. Cool, because you put him in motion, right? Yeah, and use that to be generative um, in the writing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It was a really an interesting piece to write. I feel like it was one of the first piece I wrote where I figured out what I do in a certain way, you know, like I've been writing for a long time, you know, I wrote that in maybe like summer of 2008. So I've been writing seriously for like eight years. Um, 
listeners can't see my air quotes there, but I mean, seriously, you know, but I've been writing for about eight years since I'd really started. And that was one of the, the pieces where it like clicked. It was like, this is what I do. This is how I get there. This is the process that works for me. Um, so a story that's, that's important to me in some way. It's for, for process as much as for product. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations! Right? Yeah. And feeling that, and also being able to articulate that moment, like to yeah, to recognize and. I think even then I wasn't. I couldn't have probably talked about it very well then, but I was aware that I had shifted, that I was doing something different. Um, there's, I, it's there's only one story in the book that's old. There's a story from like 2006, um, which I wrote several years old, and everything else was written in between like 2008 and and late 2009. It was written in this very short period. Oh, and then um, published so quickly. Quickly, then, yeah. So it really was like, I mean, just like went along. Um, like once I found it, yes. you know, once I found what I was doing, I could do it um, to a certain level. Uh, but I think there was that one anomalous like 2006 story and then I just wrote a bunch of garbage in between. Like I just like, I didn't, and I didn't know why that story was special, you know, like I just couldn't. I couldn't repeat it. And I couldn't do it again. But, but you know? it stands. It can stand with the other. Yeah. Which, it, which is the story? Uh, a certain number of bedrooms, a certain number of baths. It's a short story toward the end. Um, it's actually right before the collectors because they they have some similar things. Um, they bleed right, in a with the architecture. Way. Yeah, yeah. Idea. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, but it was, I, and I knew, and I knew when I did that that it had turned out well. But I couldn't. I didn't know how to repeat it, or I didn't know how to use it again. Yeah. Until and then, so it's kind of interesting. So if you pay attention, if things if obsess you, right? Right. No. And yeah. Absolutely. Like yeah, if you're I mean, going on those morning walks yeah. with your loved one <laughs> and you keep telling them about it, maybe right. that means there's going to be a click happening because you, you're meant to stay with it. Then. Yeah, I'm a very obsessive person, very obsessive writer. You know, I, um, you know, I think there's there's another story in in the book uh, called His Last Great Gift, which is about a it's another historically based story. It's, Again, in sections, right? Like it, yeah, the it's in sort of yeah. Yeah, Which, these a, are the only two that you really break up into sections too in here, right? Isn't it? It might be. Yeah, there's some. There's but some anyway, other section but, differently. But what were you yes, going to yes, say? Because yes. there's yeah, no, the because the... it has the revealments that come in and, and break it up as well. Um, but it was a similar thing where I just got really obsessed with the story uh, of this uh, John Murray Spear, who was this real minister who had these visitations from um, the spirits of the founding father who told him to build this mechanical messiah and it's super weird and it's this footnote in history um, right before the civil war uh, but it all it, it really happened but there wasn't a ton of information about it there was just mm -hmm. enough to be a seed you know you could go and look at it but it wasn't like writing about Lincoln where you're, or John F. Kennedy or something where like you have to be a genius to do something new with that. I'm not a genius, so I have to go find one of these other things to work with. Um, and it was really great. Uh, but yeah, but just obsessed in like finding a place to put that obsession. And a story is as good a place as anything else. So, And and you like entering into these characters, like this his 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 mind, yeah. Spears' mind, yeah. really. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in the same way, like a lot of my characters are these sort of egomaniac or obsessive sort of people, you know, that I think that that... Um, is a character that works for me in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm working on something new now where I'm I'm trying to write a much more muted character in some ways. Almost, I think, because I've, I know I've written a lot of that kind of character. I know I can do that kind of character. And so it's like, I need to do something a little different. You know, that as much as I was just saying, it was great to figure out what I'm doing. I also think that each book is a chance to, like I've learned how to write this book and I've learned how to write that book. And now I want to learn how to write this other book, you know, that... I didn't learn how to write a novel so I could write 50 novels like it. I learned how to write that book, and I want to write another book now. Um, so, yeah, so trying to keep growing and changing and doing different things. Um, as soon, when I start recognizing I'm doing something a lot, I want to shift 
into something else. Well, it's interesting because it's it's almost it's almost the flip side of what you were saying earlier about um, Cataclysm Baby with the twenty six, right. and where you might not have written a few of the stories, but it got you to yeah, yeah, think absolutely. about something differently, and so you had to mm-hmm. shift, and so just being conscious maybe of this makes you like this muted voice. Yeah. You'll see things that Absolutely, maybe you yeah. would have seen already. Yeah. Differently. It's just right, a yeah. quieter tone. There's more room for other characters. There's more, you know, your neighbors can sleep, right? My neighbors will sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going to read it really loud, but oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I think that, uh, but I, I, to the point, what's interesting about writing to me, why I'm doing it every day is because it's a way for me to to get at something I haven't felt before, to get at something I haven't thought before, and that doing different things gets me different places. That if I wrote the same thing over and over, I could I I would be having the same experience as as an artist too, or as, as the person making it. Um, and so you want to keep finding ways to vary that experience, or to vary that that uh, uh, mental and emotional work that I'm doing on my end. Um, and I think that's that's what makes it fun and engaging to spend the morning doing that as opposed to like the drudgery of like laying down words you know and do you have sort of a a a way of working matt where you will purposely leave off um so that you come right back into something like in the middle of a line or do you have any of those sort of ways of working because you know you're going to get up every morning right and see the pages a little bit i think that um i i'll say this i spend the time writing so like i if i if I'm writing badly that day, okay. But I'll spend the time making something, you know. Um, often between projects, I have this period where I don't know what I'm doing next. And so, like, every day I just write, like, the first three or four pages of, like, a bad story, you know. It's like, oh, here's a terrible detective story. Here's a terrible, you know, I'm just, I'm just generating. And so eventually, you give yourself exercises Yeah, yeah, well, you just, you know, you just work on whatever you want to work on. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but that always spend the time doing that. But I stop the same way. Like, at noon, I... At noon, I stop writing, you know? So if I'm in the middle of something, good. You know, if I'm not, um, okay. Mm-hmm. But, like, that almost the only thing I'm doing then that time is writing, and so I just I dive into it. Um, I think that works pretty good because it's, I'm very— It seems— Yeah, that's the mental space for that. You know, when I'm teaching, that's the mental space for teaching. I'm not in the classroom thinking about working on my book, you know? I'm in, I'm in the classroom teaching. And because I have time for the things in my life, I think that's possible. And that if I didn't, it might be harder. <laughs> um, and we should say also before we go, because our time is almost up, Matt Bell, um, coming in 2013, um, In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, that's going to be your next, um, and it's a novel. It's a novel, yeah. So first novel, um, we're just finishing up final edits on it right now. Um, so I've been been working on it the last couple of weeks again, which has been really good. Um, I have a fantastic editor at, at Soho Press named Mark Doten, who's been really good, is pushing me hard. Um, I'm really excited. I think it's a, I think it's a good book. I'm pretty, pretty, uh, very happy with Soho with it. I'm very happy with how it's turning out. Um, it's what I've been working on since I finished Cataclysm Baby, uh, maybe two and a half years of pretty constant work just on this one book. So I'm really excited to be finding the end of that process and, and to hopefully be feeling good about where we're getting. So. And, and you've got another one that you're writing. I'm right yeah, yeah. So while I, was, while I was sending it out looking for, you know, um, while I was being sent to publishers and that, I was started another one. I started, it was actually the third one I've started. I had two that I that didn't work. But this one's going to work. I got it. <laughs> I think. <laughs> we're going to believe in it. Yes. yes. Well, Matt Bell, come right. back again and talk thank you with so us. Much. And thank you so much for being here today. Fantastic. Um, 
Cataclysm Baby, How They Were Found. Um, these are books you can get now. Um, you can also go to mdbell.com uh, to Matt's website. You can also go tonight to Leopold's Books um, at 15 Kirby at 7 p.m. Um, thanks for listening, everyone out there. Thanks to the Liz. Thanks, Liz. Thanks to Matt Bell. <laughs> um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 25th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, state voter ID laws could bar millions from the polls this November. Today in Pennsylvania, a hearing opens on what the implications could be for the state's residents. For voters who do not have the required information, the psychic um, suppression of them deciding, well, there's just too big of a hurdle to be able to get this information. I'm just not going to show up. And as a result, those voters don't vote on Election Day, which probably will hurt the Democrats more than the Republicans. As the conference on HIV-AIDS continues in the nation's capital, protesters push for a Robin Hood tax to fund the fight against AIDS and bring their message to the gates of the White House. And we'll speak to a hunger striker in northern New Mexico who is calling for a transformation at the Los Alamos nuclear facility. Those brilliant minds being used to create cleanup, to create peace, to create health, to create safety, to create real security. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Today, the U.S. Attorney's Office agreed to investigate two officer-involved shootings that happened last weekend in Anaheim, California. This comes after protesters clashed with police last night. After the shooting, a group of residents from the largely Latino neighborhood, including